0: Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. Dr. Calista Mars, super excited to have you. Um, and you have been such a, a great support system to the True Sports family. So, first of all, I want to thank you for that.
1: Thank you for having me, and thank you guys for your hard work.
0: Oh, please. And and one of the one of the great things is um when I when I get to have surgeons on that know and, and love our model, it's usually because we know and love your model. So you have had some outstanding outcomes, um, up there in the York and Lebanon areas of Pennsylvania. Um, and then I got the, got the chance to spend some time with you at Mesa. So with, with some yeah. of the best surgeons in the world. Um, so obviously we know and love your work. Tell us our audience of sports PTs. Yes. What is it that makes you an outstanding surgeon?
1: Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I I do think the big thing really is our support system. Um, So I start out with the, obviously, initial eval and initial treatment, but then the hard work's always done on the back end. So a lot of the outcomes really are based on you guys and your your good hard work with therapy and then the patients uh, receiving that. But for me, I really try to take a personalized approach with patients. So I try very hard to listen to like what they've already had done, um, what symptoms are they having, what are their treatment goals? So I see patients of all age ranges. And so it's very important to me um, to their their timing, right? Is their goal that they get through senior season, um, in high school, and they have no intent of going on to college? Do they want to play in the professional level? Um, What is the next step for them? And that helps me kind of tailor their treatment plan around that. And so I think that's really been um, crucial in our outcomes.
0: Okay, so that that bleeds in beautifully to hip pathology being the topic of today's podcast. um, Because I always say that corner of the body is so complex. There's so many things that run so complex and so many things that run across those things. So patient walks into your practice and says, "Uh, I got groin pain. How are you then starting to peel away those layers to understand is this true hip pathology or could this be something else?
1: Absolutely. So, um, where in the groin. So a lot of patients that think that they have hip pathology may not. So I need them to point to me. Is it truly in the front and the anterior mm-hmm. groin? Then we're definitely thinking hip. Do they give me that C sign that we all talk about? Um, like they can't really describe where the pain is that then I'm thinking hip again. If they're pointing to like the outside, not so much intra hip pathology. Now we're looking at more muscular stuff. Then I say, when does it hurt? Any injury mechanisms? So, like, did they have an acute event that they can feel like they thought a pop? That might be more muscular. Like, did they pull off um, one of their growth plates? I also look at their age. Do they have growth plates? Um, then we start looking at does it hurt them to sit in class or sit in a car? A lot of patients with intra hip pathology have pain just sitting. Um, and so that's pretty important because you're kind of getting to that hip flexion and that impingement area when they're sitting down. Um, then I go down to what have they tried? So how long has it been there? Have they tried injections? Have they tried therapy? Um, what has and has not worked for their hip?
0: Okay. So so as you um you're you're working towards that subjectively to figure out which way you want to take it, then what happens yep. objectively? What kind of tests are you running yep. um to so rule actually- things in or out?
1: Yeah, absolutely, good question. So I do five, I, obviously I do a physical exam. So I'm looking at, do they have pain with Fader? Do they have pain with Faber? I check their psoas. Do they have pain at hip flexion and 40, 45 degrees of hip flexion and some internal rotation? You can catch some psoas pain with that. Um, check for internal x snapping. I get a five view hip X-ray in the office. So I always do weight bearing films. They need a weight bearing AP pelvis. It needs to be a good AP There are some um, technical uh, considerations when we get the X-ray. I get an isolated uh, AP of the hip, a lateral of the hip, and then I get two special views. One's called a modified done. That shows me morphology more so than other x-rays. And then the other one's called a false profile view. That helps me show their subspine, their ASIS, and then their their coverage on the front other hip. So those are the first objective things that we look at. And then based on that, do we go down the road of doing diagnostic hip injections? Do we do an MRI? Do we do a CT scan? CT is kind of like the last step in any type of surgical planning for me
0: okay so correct me if i'm wrong if if i'm a a pt with a with an athlete with i'm suspecting some type of hip pain i make a referral out to a physician if they aren't receiving these five views of x-rays are they seeing the wrong hip specialist
1: um I would say they at least need a modified done and a false profile. You don't always have to get a dedicated AP of the hip if they have an AP pelvis, a lateral, and then those two other views. um, They're really important in catching some subtleties in the hip. Um, Now, some people will only get the three view and jump straight to advanced imaging in terms of MRIs and CTs. Um, I'm just a little less aggressive in terms of spending the patient's money in that realm um, if they don't necessarily need it. So I screen them with those x-rays.
0: Okay. So, so what are you looking for in those x-rays that are then going to lead you down the path of MRI versus now you're good?
1: Yep. So I look at their, um, what we call their over or their under coverage on their cup. So I measure what's called the lateral center edge angle that tells me, are they a shallow cup or do they have a deep cup? So that tells me kind of pincer impingement, hip instability, um, dysplasia so if it's under an angle of 26 now we're talking about micro instability of the hip or hip dysplasia that's a whole different conversation that we have to have because that's a much harder correction with an arthroscopy um over the angle of 40 now we're looking at pincer impingement so now i know they're an at-risk hip for a labral tear Um, anything in between like in the normal realm maybe not so much in trichicular pathology then we go to those special views. Um, I measure what's called an alpha angle. That gives me, the, if, they, if they do or do not have a cam bump, um, also at risk of hip impingement with a cam bump. So if they have an at-risk hip, now we start taking the train towards hip pathology. Um, mm-hmm. If they do not have an at-risk hip, we start going towards muscular control, um, rotational issues, uh, muscle imbalance, that kind of thing.
0: So, so that's when you're leaning towards go back to your PT or go to a PT. Let's see how we get you stronger, more stable. Yep. Okay. So how long has that concept of micro instability under 26? um, How long has that been around?
1: It has not, uh, it has been around how long we have recognized it. Not so long. So the under 26 has been around a long time. That's been a standard cutoff for hip dysplasia, but the micro instability I want to say they were probably starting to talk about that eight years ago at this point, um, maybe 10. It's it's taken off even more in the last five. So 10 years ago, we weren't really focused on it. A few people were talking about it throughout the country, and we started to pay attention. And now it's, it's come to the forefront in like the last five years.
0: And, and I feel like I've been a PT long enough to see um, hip scopes, labor repairs, labor reconstructions that failed didn't do well. And they they were floppy, they were super mobile, right? They just yeah. seemed to not do really well. Um, and I never really understood why. It sounds like they were this micro instability world, right?
1: Right. Yep, and, uh, absolutely. And we used to say you don't need to close the capsule. Like the capsule is not that important. That's now well known to kind of be the wrong answer. Like the capsule is very important. Um, and then there was this wave where well, like men don't need capsular repairs and women do not necessarily true either. So, but now we're much more focused on getting a good capsular closure and selecting the right patient to get the hip scope is, um, uh, very important.
0: And so I, I think that is gold for our audience. listening because usually the way it plays out, at least in Maryland and PA, definitely in Maryland, um, we'll get those patients first. And, you know, I'm, I'm working like, like crazy to get this patient strong, to get this patient better. They're not doing well. When I send them out to a hip specialist, I think it's really important for all the PTs listening to know, you want to send them to a hip specialist that is up to date with current literature. And by the way, that means within the last, according to what you just said, five years, right? So you got to be constantly learning. And if you're making that referral, ruling out a scope is arguably more important than saying, yeah, I'll scope you.
1: It's at. for me. It's the most important part of my hip exam. Is like, do I need to rule you out of this before I rule you into this?
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that is gold, and that is what PTs should hear and know and start to vet our surgeons um, to say who, who is our hip person and why is it the hip person. You know, we have a hip. We have a hip guy down in Maryland who is this massive um, hospital systems hip guy, yep. and he he's not ruling out he's doing a lot of ruling in right um yep. and and just because you have the title of hip specialist i think some of this information with the five view with the under 26 um invaluable to the referring pt to say hey this is a right. hip specialist i know and trust and love um so so thanks for sharing that okay under 26 what kind of x-ray is that yeah. that they're under 26 that's the ap pelvis Okay, so AP pelvis under 26, these patients, for me personally, are very challenging. Um, very
1: challenging. Yes.
0: What do you What do you do with them surgically when they're under 26 on the AP?
1: So, before we jump there, then I talk to them about a diagnostic injection. So almost all of my hips, regardless if they're under 26 or not, I'm doing at least a diagnostic hip injection of lidocaine under ultrasound. I want that to resolve their hip pain, even if it's for 20 minutes. Um, Then they get an option of having a steroid to try to get us back to baseline. We do know there's upwards of 30 to 60% asymptomatic labral tears in athletes, particularly hockey players. So ice hockey players, especially goalies, you know what position they get in, like 60% of them have tears and don't know it. So can Mm -hmm. I get them back to baseline with an injection and with therapy, then we can avoid hip scope. I'm not as worried about the tear itself. Um, I want their pain to be gone. If their pain goes away with the diagnostic injection and it comes back, now we're confirming the tears are on an MRI and I'm getting a CT scan. um, I guess to try to avoid any proprietary, uh, places there's a certain company that i send my ct to and they give me a, a 3d printout of it and it's almost like a heat map it shows me where are they pinching what is their exact rotation in their hip so like my x-rays are decent but they're not as good as a ct so the ct will give me numbers on the rotation at their hip their femoral version is important are they an at their femur and their cup is shallow that's a that's a recipe for disaster that's me sending it to an open hip surgeon I'm not scoping that. Um, the borderline is when they have a slightly shallow cup at like 22 to 26, but their femoral hip rotation is pointed backwards. So they actually grew so that their thigh bone or their femur, it has a little slight retroversion and it's compensating a little bit for their shallow cup. They're still in a window that can get a hip scope if they get what's called a capsular plication. So if we tighten the capsule.
0: Okay, so you Um, have to tighten that capsule on that point in that
1: Got to tighten that capsule on that point, yep. And then there are a few patients that if they're shallow and their hips pointed forward, um, they still might be a candidate for hip arthroscopy, but they may need what's called on backup, a capsular reconstruction. So kind of like the shoulder where people were doing superior capsular reconstructions, um, they're doing this in the hip now. I will tell you, I'm not personally doing it. I just have not been um, exposed to it enough. I know it exists. I know who um, needs it on backup um i haven't done one so i don't do it now i will send them to the guys that do there's probably five in the country that are doing it well and so it's that new um we actually we have access to a lot of them on the east coast which is very helpful um there's a dock in philly and a dock in pittsburgh doing it and then you've got utah tennessee and colorado and that's it that's pretty much it yeah and so um now a lot of them get away with being able just to tighten the capsule, and they don't need the reconstruction. But I don't want to get into a situation where we're in the middle of their hip scope, and I said, "All right, we fixed it. Your capsule's not tightening up. You need a re. You need a reconstruction." So that's yeah, a good. long. That's a long office conversation because it's travel, it's out of network, it's it's a process for these people, so it's hard. But
0: yeah. But but the point you're you're making, which is totally worthwhile, is. Uh, not every not every hip impingement is the same. No two are probably right. the same, and no no yeah. two hip surgeons are qu- equally qualified to do a given thing. So, kind of knowing where you are, where they fit in this algorithm, and and where yeah. to send them is is super important. Um, is there a concept like there is in the shoulder of a performance enhancing labral tear? Right. So, like we know that elite level pitchers are able to get this unbelievable layback so that they they're able to increase their velocity into the triple digits and you go ahead and fix that labrum forget it like these are the guys that gulata is like i'm not touching that thing
1: right yep so Um, does
0: that exist in the hip
1: no not that we know of
0: okay so if you tight if you do a labral repair you tighten up an nhl goalie's hip he's still going to be able to get to the positions he was pre-op
1: Absolutely. The odds of it, I'll be honest, the odds of an NHL goalie having a capsular problem is extremely low. They're usually the cam pincer combined deformity guys that we have to actually give them more motion by shaving down a bump. Um, It's usually the young, skinny ballet dancers and females who are getting into extreme positions. Right. They can get into an extreme position because the rotation in their hip is allowing them to do that. Yeah. Um, so they're more at risk and, and an isolated capsular reconstructions, not limiting that. Um, the thing that could limit that is when you get to the next extreme, which is open procedures or osteotomies where they have, we have to cut the bone and move it and physically correct the rotation that could absolutely, um, limit a person's career, especially in things like dance.
0: And, and so just a standard capsular tightening is not going to restrict that dancers no. necessary motion. Right. Okay, love it. So um, are you ever going towards a hip scope without getting that proprietary CT imaging?
1: I, use, I used to uh, before it existed, and now I do not. So it's always in my toolbox, um, one of my preoperative checklist requirements so that I can see what's going on.
0: Can I put that in the list of musts to recommend to a PT or at least to a surgeon to say, you don't know what you're properly repairing or attacking without seeing that heat map. Is that, is that true?
1: I wouldn't know. I wouldn't say it's a must. Um, you can see a lot on the MRI. There are other advanced imaging CTs with other companies. They're giving people the same information. It's just the one that I personally use. Um, and I think majority of surgeons are using it. We can get a lot of information on the x-ray. We just aren't making it perfect. Um, we get closer to perfect with the advanced imaging. So I can't say that it's a must. Um, there are plenty of good surgeons that are more skilled or um, higher volume than I am in hips uh, that are not always doing that, um, but they they know what they're doing and I would never not say that they can't. And, the and you,
0: when you go into that joint intraoperatively, can you see those points of... Um, I guess, compression or impingement once you're in there?
1: So there is a second technology. Um, I don't personally utilize it. There's some, I shouldn't say there's some issues with it. There are, it is not cheap to use. So from a patient, it adds the cost to it, at least in our centers. And so unfortunately, since we're in the private world, we don't have the academic funding for it. Um, but you can actually get uh, an iPad that matches their CT to what you're seeing on their x-ray. So you can get six different fluoroscopy views interoperatively that tries to match the two. And then you kind of play video game like, yep, my x-ray looks good to my CT, nope, not so much. Um, So that's the next level that uh, I don't personally have access to, but that's the next level that some people do.
0: Okay, okay, fascinating. It's crazy because it sounds like there's this whole menu of options available to the surgeon potentially, definitely available to the patient if they're willing to travel. How, how does a patient get educated on these menus? I feel like in Baltimore, if you don't go to the place to the doc, that sounds like you, you're not getting that menu. So how do I learn this stuff?
1: Um, really, a lot of the conferences and seeing who's talking like who is giving the talks on this, that's who that's who knows about it. Hmm. And that, that's hard. The patients don't know that, right? Like, it's the patients have to talk to you. And then you guys say, yeah, you have failed three to six months of therapy. Like these are the guys and gals that I know that do hips a lot. Go see them.
0: Okay. So as PTs, so educate us PTs. How do I know who's presenting on this stuff and researching? Am I going to PubMed? Like break it down like I'm a moron.
1: Yeah, (laughs) good question. So um, really there's... um, August, there's a hip conference every year. So you can even just go online and see who is listed to present at the hip conference. Uh, AAOS is our big academic meeting. We meet once a year in March, there are always hip talks. So that's the easiest one to reference is really the Academy. So go to the Academy's website, kind of see who's talking on this stuff. um, And it'll give a general um, guide as to who is in tune with the hip world.
0: At least you have a name. Okay, that that is awesome advice. So I, I always wonder about like how surgeons got to where they are and how they become the, the given specialists. Tell me a little bit about Dr. Morris, because you have a DO after your name. And, and then you. Yep. You can, as, as you worked your way through this medical career, walk me through the difference between DO and MD and if you would have done it differently, like why you went to mm-hmm. DO school. Um, yeah. And then how does one learn how to do a hip scope um, if they're also doing UCLs and uh, rotator cuff pathology?
1: Absolutely. So, um take a step back. I went to Bucknell university, played field hockey there. Then I've always wanted to go to med school. I've wanted to do orthopedics since I was eight. That's a whole nother, uh, my podcast conversation, but, um, so I've always wanted to do ortho. So that was the goal. There was nothing outside of that goal. Um, terrible answer, but I am a bad standardized test taker. So my, um, not a bad answer. 4.0 GPA. Right. And, uh, socially, uh, I feel like I'm okay on the social realm of things. So I'm not a uh, socially yeah. but, um, but, the, but the, the standardized test is what's kind of the first screening tool for med school. And mine was kind of right at that borderline cutoff for a lot of the MD schools um, was not for the DOs. So I went in and said, you know what? There really is no difference anymore in DO world than MD world. There will be a lot of controversy behind that. Some of my older colleagues, um, osteopathic school is every single class you get in allopathic school plus an additional class on manipulative medicine that's basically the nuts and bolts of it so if there are eight core classes we have nine
0: um so so we so you're smarter
1: i didn't say we're smarter (laughs) we just look at things uh holistically is how they used to say it so so we do so we get nine and then training is the same you can train in a now especially today All of the um, residencies are under the same accrediting body, which is huge. That's great. Um, Just from a collegial standpoint, we can all now kind of share information. So um, the kids coming out now can go to any residency in the the country, DOs go to MD residencies, MDs go to DO residencies. So the training is very streamlined and similar. Um, So then went there, but Really in residency, I did not get a lot of hip exposure because it was still pretty in its infancy. Um, So residents now get some exposure. I got it in fellowship and I sought out a fellowship that had a hip arthroscopist. So when I went to fellowship, I did hip scopes with him. I spent extra time with them. And then when I came out, I also went to conferences and courses. Um, There's a lot of courses that you could do. So I I dedicated some time to hip courses. Um, And then my partner, luckily when I came out, did some hip scopes, so we used to do some cases together. And so we got very comfortable.
0: What do you say to that first patient that has labral pathology and Mm -hmm. they're like um, you say to them, I I think you you fit all the criteria to have a successful outcome from a from a hip arthroscopy um, and they say, how many of these have you done?
1: Yeah. So I get that a lot. And I still get that a lot, even though I've been out for a long time. I don't know. I guess I look younger, especially when I go get my gray dyed out. Um, (laughs) I said, I said, I do have gray hair. Um, So I tell them, I always say very early on, I said, I'll be honest, you know, you're my first or you're my second hip scope. Like I I did a lot in training. This is the, I gave them the number that I did in training and I say, that's what I did in training and in fellowship. I'm now on my own you know, if you're uncomfortable with that, I entirely respect that decision. Here are the names of some people that I would recommend who've been in the practice longer than I have. So that's how I would approach it with patients. Some wanted the second opinion, some stayed. Um, and I still say, that. I say, you know, this is how many I do a year. There are people, so I probably do 25 hip scopes a year. There are surgeons out there that do 50 to 100. And there are very good hip scope surgeons that do 50 to 100. And I tell them, I was like, my practice is also shoulder, elbow and knee so i have a combination of all four i'm not in an academic setting where i am the only hip preservation specialist there are places that have that and i will refer them to there if that's what they desire um so that's how i approach it now um and most patients in the area are comfortable there are a few that that want that person that does 50 to 100 and i don't i respect that i would not ever i won't yeah i don't that's not doesn't offend me i recommend second opinions all the time so
0: Okay. Um, and then the first time you, when you're learning how to do a hip scope, are you practicing first on a cadaver?
1: Practicing first on a cadaver. Um, and then you are working with your trainers. So you're, you're in fellowship. You have an attending who's been doing this a lot. They're taking you stepwise through it. They might let you do part A, and then they do the rest of it. And then next time you do part B, so you're doing little bits and pieces each time. Hip arthroscopy is very uh, labor intensive in terms of learning. It takes a lot until you get to be more efficient with it. Um, but cadaver is one way, not the greatest, because it's hard to get the appropriate traction on the hip, but it's one of the only ways we have to uh, to do it.
0: Practice. Okay. So knowing what you know now as a seasoned mm-hmm. vet, how long mm-hmm. does it take to become an outstanding hip surgeon?
1: Um, or how many easily... reps?
0: How many patients should it be?
1: uh 50 to
0: 100 52 to 100 so it could be a guy with 1 year experience could be a, someone with 5 years experience that's doing it minimally but it takes that amount yeah. of reps to really get good at it and and what is the most challenging piece of it intraoperatively um
1: access is your first challenge um so hip access is not like any other joint we need to use fluoroscopy so that's challenge number one once you get through that my personal challenge is still the capsule you got to get the capsule open and you got to get the capsule closed and capsular management even now in my practice is one of my hardest um struggles wow. so i'm i'm still working on perfecting that it's just a visualization thing you want to be able to preserve it um the angle in the hips a little bit different and so it's just technique um And so I think it. I I honestly think it takes fifty to one hundred to become proficient. I think it probably takes personally three to five hundred to become that top ten.
0: Yeah, to be to be, and I would
1: not. And I, I would not put myself in that top ten.
0: I would. Okay. So
1: I appreciate that.
0: (laughs) So walk us through because I think this is such a missing piece in the PT's um, knowledge base. Patient goes to sleep. Then what happens? Then what happens?
1: Yeah. So patient goes to sleep. They get put on a special table, which is a distraction table. There are several on the market. Um, There are historically the ones that we used to use with what's called a post. So there was a big pad that went between your thigh. Um, And then you actually have to dislocate the hip. So you are pulling so much force through the hip that the hip pops out of the socket. And we take an x-ray. The x-ray shows us that there's space between the socket and the ball now. You get a little, what's called an air arthrogram. That's step one. You have to adjust rotation so that you know what angle you're gonna approach the hip. And then you use a really long needle and fluoro to get into the hip. And then you start dilating with a wire and a dilator and then a cannula. And you put your camera in and then you get another portal and maybe a third. And it's all under x-ray with the monitor and with traction you have to make sure that their foot is really padded in a boot because if the foot slides, like a ski boot, if their foot slides out of that ski boot, you're mm-hmm. gonna lose your visualization. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that's kind of the prep. There are new tables on the market um, that don't use a post, which is very helpful, new learning curve. You, It's it's, it's,
0: less, it's harder less to pull. get yeah.
1: less pull. Um, you have to adjust the bed. So we used to operate flat to get traction without a post, you got to tilt them. So now all of our angles are off a little bit. So new world, but the no post is the only way that I will personally scope the hip because the post has a ton of complications, um, all the way down to unfortunately erectile dysfunction in men's permanent. Wow. So the, the traction on the hip is, um, as a must to get into the hip. Um, but it is risky in terms of um, nerve pathology um, we know traction over two hours is a no-no but even 30 minutes can cause problems
0: I'm I'm so happy that I'm in charge of editing this podcast because I'm just envisioning you saying permanent erectile dysfunction <laughs> and me saying wow wow um, okay so it's like a I, it's like
1: a bad commercial for a,
0: a, a drug it's <laughs> a really bad commercial um so I, I I've seen not personally thank God I've seen some of those um, issues like, like bruising and pain from the post, what percentage of docs are now using post lists?
1: I don't know the answer to that. Do you yeah, think um, is it
0: commonplace?
1: No, I still, I still think it is not the commonplace. Um, the first post list traction table came out in 2018. So okay. it was limited launch, um, for the people that designed it in 2017. Um, it came out in 2018. It took me almost two years to get one purchased at Geisinger. So we got one at Geisinger in like 2020. Um, then I went to OSS and it took another year to get a different version of it um, under purchase order. So then it was like another year. So I don't think we had a bed at OSS until 2022. So it is definitely not the common practice.
0: The The HANA table
1: with the post is probably the most common way to do it, just because that table can also be used for total joint surgeons who do direct anterior hips. And so one bed, multiple indications for use, the post is traction on the hip, one bed for hip scopes. If the center doesn't do a lot of them, nobody is going to be able to get that center to purchase it
0: how how do you restrict um let's call it inferior translation of the body if you're trying to distract if you don't have that post what's holding the body stationary
1: uh it actually looks like an egg crate it's a big foam pad and their body friction with the foam pad and what we call Trendelenburg so you're leaning head back um so your body weight is provided enough counterforce with that foam pad to get the hip out it's actually pretty genius i wish i had uh thought of that but uh, but uh but it's pretty genius And then in really muscular men, you can add in what's called an air arthrogram. So if I can't get traction with just that, I bring the x-ray machine in, I I prep their hip, I put a needle in the hip, and I I physically inject air. That air breaks the seal, and then the hip pops out.
0: Oh, wow. Um, It sounds aggressive. So... Okay. So, so now that you have dislocated hip, you've inserted your portals, you have visualization, walk me through the surgical process and the difference between, um, labral repair and labral reconstruction and anything else I'm missing.
1: Yeah. So now you're in the hip and the capsules are really thick and you're not going to get anywhere in the hip unless you open up the capsule. There's two ways to do it. Uh, one is called an inner portal. So you just, you take different devices and instruments that cuts the lining through the camera, um, and you cut it between the two portals. Then there's what's called a T capsulotomy. So you cut it between the two portals and then you make an extra split. Um, I do an inner portal, a little bit more easy to close and I can still see everything I need to see. The T capsulotomy gets important if somebody has a really large cam deformity. Otherwise, you don't really need the T. Um, once the lining's opened up, now I have to peel the lining off of the labrum without damaging the labrum. And I peel it up off the socket. Um, we also have to try to preserve it because now it's got to get repaired to the other end. Now we have two leaflets. Um, we're pulling that top leaflet out of the way and we're looking at the labrum. You can see with the labrum, um, whether it was torn with what's called a cam bump. So usually what happens with the cam bump, the labrum's torn and the cartilage where the labrum attaches is bubbled. And so that's more cam deformity. If there's hemorrhage in the labrum, that's more that the labrum's getting pinched with the pincer or the or the problem on the cup side. So you can kind of confirm what you thought was the cause when you're in there. Um, mm-hmm. You're like, yep, I, I thought it was a pincer. The labrum looks like it was a pincer deformity. We're here for the right reasons um are we bailing if we don't see that no but you know it's a good mental reassurance um Mm -hmm. then does the labrum look healthy is it a primary repair so primary first surgeries try to repair it that's where we're putting anchors um into the bone just like we do with shoulders and we wrap suture around the labrum you can tie knots there's knotless technology i like the knotless technology um that puts the labrum back down to bone um, I was taught, uh, by some of my colleagues actually on a very similar forum that we're at it was kind of like a podcast. It was during COVID. We had nothing to do. We weren't operating. So everybody started talking about hips and people were like, you know, you should really tension these anchors off of traction. I was like, I never thought about that before. If we tension the anchor on traction, we can actually flip the labrum up. And if we lose suction seal, patient's pain doesn't go away. So now I'll put stitches in, I let traction down, I tension the anchor and I pull traction again. And I wanna see the the fluid in the hip kind of bubble or egress that tells me that I regained their suction seal and that we've successfully repaired or restored the suction seal to the hip. That's kind of crucial step number one. And then step number two is addressing what caused it, the bump and step number three is getting the capsule closed.
0: Okay, Labor so can- hold on. Let me cut you off for a yep. heartbeat. So you're, yep. you're taking labrum. And when you say repair you so you stitch the tear, mm-hmm. right, um, which is going to close close up that suction, hopefully, when you put it back towards the bone, what are you doing? You're bolting it down inside of acetabulum?
1: Good question. So there's like, a, there's a guide that looks like a straw. And then there's a drill bit that goes down the straw, and makes a hole in the bone in the cup. You have to be very careful because since the cup is um, concave, it can go into the joint bad, right? So we have to make sure the angle is in the bone. Um, then several different anchors exist. Some of them have like a plastic screw with suture coming out and some are just all suture. But either way you use, whichever anchor you use, it has a suture coming out of it like thread. And then Mm -hmm. we pass that thread around the labrum. So the first step is putting the hole in the bone. And then the second step is putting the thread around the suture. And then that suture goes back into that hole.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And that tightens it up and holds it up against where it should be up against its bony surface. Um, and that kind of closes it up. Okay. So now shoot back to, um, reconstruction and, and then what eventually you do with that capsule.
1: Yep, so reconstruction, um, more often revision settings or if somebody had and you get in there and the labrum is just shredded and it's not repairable, um, mm-hmm. debridements do fairly poorly about only 40 success, 40% success rate with a debridement. So if patient had a prior debridement and failed it, um, then reconstruction, or you get in there and the labrum looks really bad, reconstruction um yeah. most of the time for me i there are some guys uh dr ben dome i believe out in um midwest is doing some primary reconstructions i don't do them primarily i do it for a revision um i will have them fail uh some early stuff because there's still a 40% chance that they don't need that extensive procedure depending on their level um, but you're building somebody else's tissue now so the the bumper I tell people the bumper is kind of like a hair tie or the bowling alley bumper to keep the ball in the lane. Um, we're rebuilding that out of either your IT band right at the hip. So you harvest the central third, you roll it up like the old school fruit roll ups. Um, and then you suture it and then you tuck it back in with anchors. So you're taking one feeding it in attaching it and then suturing it all the way around the top and then anchoring it. Um, or an allograft, which is somebody else's tissue, but it is a, it is a very labor intensive, um, process compared to a repair.
0: It, it sounds like, I never thought of it this way, but it, it sounds like almost the concept of the ladder J where you're, you're blocking it from, from kind of moving out of socket. Is that right? Is that the right? Yeah. It, it, I know it's uh, not a I wouldn't bone say
1: necessarily. Yeah. I would say, I would think of it. It's more like shoulder instability. Um, and capsular shifts or capsuloraphy, where we're we're grabbing that answer capsule to rebuild the bumper. Um, yeah. We're not doing a remplissage, right? There's no remplissage in the hip. You're not adding in a rotator cuff to to block the instability portion, but it's yeah. more equatable to repairing a labrum back to a glenoid than um, the, the latter J
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So that ma- that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then then what? Now we got to put the capsule back.
1: Now we're going to put the capsule back. So it, the sequence is kind of more so you're in. Yes, we're going to repair the labrum. What caused it? Do we need to shave down bone on the cup? Um, order of sequence is shave the cup, fix the labrum, shave the femur or the femoral head or the cam bump, mm-hmm. fix the capsule. So after you've shaved the, the bump on the on the cup side, if they need it, and you've repaired the labrum, you take traction down. You flex their hip to about 30 degrees and you start internally and externally rotating it. And under direct visualization with x ray, you can shave down their cam bump. Got to be careful. Uh, Over aggressive resections, we've learned, are bad. That causes a loss of suction seal. So if they get too big of a, of a resection, as they bend up, they lose a the seal because they fall into the hole that you just created. And that way, really bad um, is breaking your hip. So if you, if you get a really aggressive cam resection, you can actually break your hip after surgery. Um, less is, I guess, now that our knowledge is better, a little bit less risky because we aren't as aggressive. Um, and then the opposite is true. Uh, you can under resect. So you can not take enough and still have impingement. But I will tell you, under resection is a much hard, much easier problem to solve than over resection. We still don't know what really to do with over resection because we can't get the bone back.
0: Um, how, how do you, how are you determining whether you took enough um, or too or too much? It's based upon yep. that suction?
1: Based on su- suction, fluoro or x-ray. So we take an x-ray so we, we can compare your preoperative imaging, which is why those modified done x-ray is very important. Um, and then the CT scan tells me on a clock face, like Six o'clock needs a two millimeter resection, four o'clock needs a three millimeter resection. And um, Dr. Larson came out with a paper several years ago that, that tells us at what degree do we bend the hip and turn the hip and take an x-ray, what clock are we seeing?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we mm-hmm. know, you know, if you bent to 30 degrees and you're internally rotated 30, you're looking at X on a, on an x-ray.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So so I've definitely had experience where patients have gone to, you know, a hip specialist of the month. They, they get, um, they get a resection. They come out, they still have pinching pain, um, you know, towards flexion. Is that an instance of, Hey, he didn't take enough.
1: How early on are they having the pinching pain?
0: So, good question. Uh, you know, I've seen it early on. We'll do it. Um, l- let's say within the first month, they still have their impingement. And I'm saying, give it time. We got to let stuff calm down. Fast yeah. forward six months post, they still have that pinch. Is is that what I should be thinking? Hey, doc left too much bone in there?
1: Um, too much, potentially left too much bone. Um, even sometimes though, they can get scarring between the capsule and the labrum. So we're kind of working those kinks out. So like did they get into rehab early enough? So if, if you delay rehab, the capsule can scar to the labrum and you can get the pinching pain. So the surgery might have gone fine. And if they built up too much scar tissue, we're in trouble. Um, they're looking at different medications we can maybe give patients after to, to decrease some to decrease the scar formation, but early range of motion in the hip is crucial. So like non-weighted recumbent bike, is great. Like get the hip cycling early um, so that the scar doesn't form. Um, so it can be some scar formation. So it doesn't necessarily mean it was a totally failed procedure. Um, I will then at times when that happens, you can go back to the drawing board, new CT scan, right? Like new x-ray, like pre and post x-rays. Um, I usually make them fail up to almost a year though of therapy to see if they can rehab past that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Now, this is kind of what you hit on before with your outstanding interpersonal acumen. That is an awesome segue to... When do you start these patients in rehab
1: Uh, week one? Um, If that's a hard balance, as you know, right? So like a lot of these patients are capped by their insurance capabilities, Um, but I will tell them to get their hip moving early. If they have limitations in their insurance plan, I will start them after my first post operative visit. Ideally, they start at like post op day two and
0: three. Nice. Okay. Yeah. stuff. I get terrified when I see these things a week, two weeks out. I think it's like we're missing that window. And it's it probably leads to some of that scar formation. By the way, it's the same with the ACL stuff, right? It's like, right. if you go to a therapist that knows what the hell they're doing, you better be gentle during those first few visits. But it can pay off right. like crazy by avoiding some of the scar tissue crap. Yep.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: so I love here. I love hearing that. Okay, so now along With the millions of scopes you've seen, what do you, what do you think the biggest mistake we make as sports PTs when we're trying to rehab these patients? Oh,
1: that's a good question. I don't know if it's necessarily a mistake or a lack of what we know we need to do. Um, I feel like we have a lot of knowledge on how to rehab throwing shoulder and how to rehab Tommy John and how to rehab ACL for to take care we just probably say we know that we don't yet really have a good refined answer on how do we rehab a post-operative hip and i can't tell you that right like that would be great if you guys could like give, do a little dig in on like what the best you know exercises are early to like not stress the joint but i mean we know that i don't go non-weight bearing anymore i put them foot flat because their mm-hmm. foot flat on the ground has less joint reactive forces than them trying to lift their hip up so mm-hmm. it's just simple things like that. And I think that there's not enough knowledge yet in the therapy world to make it a, um. what's the word I'm looking for? Easily easily accessible isn't the right word, but it's hard to find a good hip therapist.
0: Yeah. Because yeah, well,
1: you guys don't get to see it a lot, right? I mean, you guys are great, but yeah. if you live in the middle of nowhere,
0: you don't see enough of them. You you You, you don't see you enough see. of them. Yeah. I, so I think what, it, it's I was an say, exposure I think thing, I, right? It's an exposure thing. And I think when I get new grads, um, how do we bring them up to speed? We wanna first of all, it's a low-hanging fruit. Like you wanna right. always err on the side of caution, right? We we right. don't want to start loading these guys. We don't want we don't want to start squatting before they're regular before they're able to do that. I also right. see therapists run like wildfire from the hip flexor. And I think sometimes to a detriment, I think we right. forget that the hip flexor needs to get stronger. It responds just like any muscle in our body to load appropriately delivered and being deliberate about that and spreading that out, I think is a mistake that that we make. Um, I go crazy when the surgeons terrify the patients. So if I were to flip that around and ask me, um, what do yeah. I think surgeons screw up the most? It's it they make their patients so scared to move that knee that the whole th- or sorry, the hip that the whole thing just freezes up
1: right. and then
0: we're dead. So, Dr. Morris, tell your colleagues to stop scaring the F out of their patients.
1: Sounds good. I have a question for you. I mean, what do you think we need to focus on in terms of like hip and recovery? Like what muscles are you guys targeting? Like I send them and I send general guidelines and I got the general guidelines from a therapist I used to work with out in Cincinnati. But like I'm always open to you guys saying now look like you're a little bit behind on the rehab world. Like we need to be doing this instead. And um, so what what do you guys look at with that kind of thing?
0: So number one, a happy hip joint has a really strong glute around it. So how are you isolating glute? What portions of the glute are you hitting and are you loading glute enough? It's so safe to hit glute so early. Um, And I I think we just run away from that. We go into this protective mode and we're just obsessed with motion. Motion's important, but that that glute better be strong. So I think we, um, I love seeing, Glute recruitment and loading through a given range of motion, I get away from glute sets, I think they're overblown, I think let's put them in a bridge position, let's get them working on a bridge position from it's really 30 degrees of hip flexion to neutral um, is totally safe. So we get into that very early, we also get into um, a glute bridge to neutral. Um, bilateral and then having them, especially if they're foot flat weight bearing, having them engage, let's say the right glute is the operative side, Get left glute rolling, lift the right foot, realize how little dip transpires in that bridge position, then compare it to the other side. Those have to match before we start progressing properly. How do you get them to match? Well, first it's isometrics, then it's eccentrics, then it's concentric, eccentric. It's just like any other muscle, um, or any other joint really rehab. So I think that is a must Two, get them in prone position quick. So let that hip flexor elongate the the position of comfort is hip flexion. Like everyone wants to get into that fetal position. Let's get them long. Make sure they have tummy time so that they don't get scarring and adhesions along anterior hip. Can you tell that I had little kids? Um, and (laughs) And then from there, please revert back to being a strength coach. And what I mean by that is understand load, understand your goal. And are you dosing this athlete or patient appropriately so they can continue to make gains? Don't be scared of the repaired hip. It's solid. The only way you screw this thing up is bringing them up into knee flexion, ripping them into internal rotation. Right. If you avoid that, you're good. Right. Um, that, so that's them, great. I'm strong. That That's that's where I live on that. Um, what What do you, let me, let me flip it a little bit back to you, which is What do you wish hip surgeons were better at as it pertains to hip scope?
1: Oh man, I feel like we still need, I mean, we just need to perfect it all. I mean, I think we need to get better at um, managing even preoperative and postoperative expectations. Um, I think we need to get better at patient selection. I think we need to get better at understanding going away from the interesting hip. Lateral side of hip pain is this like big box, right? Mm -hmm. It's that's a whole nother podcast um and then also understanding there are outliers in this room right there are is a higher rate of concomitant and sports hernias so when you tear your labrum you put intraarticular pressure increases in your rectus and your adductor and vice versa so we know that very well that's a hard thing to grasp there's not many people in the area that do sports hernias well so if they're having recurrent pain is it really the hip is it a sports hernia? Do we do it outside the box? But I think we, we, we need to manage the capsule. Like you want a one, one answer, it's capsule or management.
0: And how do you get better at that? What, what where are they dropping the ball with that? Dropping
1: ball, number one, not straight up, not repairing it. And then um, I one of the reasons that I think capsular management is the hardest is if I don't leave enough of the limb on the acetabular side, I don't have a lot to sew it to. So I'm still even personally balancing, like, how do I make a good inner portal capsulotomy so that I can see things, but give myself enough to close it?
0: Mm-hmm. And, and so and when, I, I, that's interesting. When you say close it... You, That's that's your repair of the capsule. You're closing it and tightening up. Some docs are just leaving it open.
1: Leaving it open. Yep. Why? Uh, Older thought of um, treatments to the hips that the capsule did not matter.
0: God put it there for a reason. To quote Jimmy Andrews, right? Like, yeah, you should probably put it back. I would think
1: put it back. Yep, put it back. Um, And so I think that and. There's many ways to try to close it. I think as a society, if somebody can invent an easier way for us to do this, more would get closed and it'd be a little bit easier, but the technology is still evolving in terms of getting the capsule stuff right. So that's where we need to kind of really focus. Everybody knows how to put a stitch around a labrum and put an anchor in. Um, We need to get the capsule better.
0: I'll put that on my list of things to... Get better at. Yeah.
1: You you admit uh, that and then you'll be good. So <laughs> I'll
0: be good. I'll be good. I'll be coasting. Um, okay. I love to wrap up with a lightning round. So get ready for right. some. But I want quick answers, doc. I don't want you to okay. pause and oh, say, man, oh, I'm that so was a bad good at question. this. Well,
1: oh, I'm here bad. Here we this is like I feel like I'm on family feud right now.
0: We, yes, and and I'm Steve Harvey. Okay. <laughs> you could have a beer with one historical figure. Who is it? It's a good question.
1: It is a good question. dead <laughs> or alive.
0: Yes, either.
1: Yes, either. Well, I want to consider this person a historical figure, but I would have a beer with John Cruck.
0: That's a good freaking answer. Why'd you pull that?
1: <laughs> he's my favorite player of all time, he's the man he knows sports like I'd have a beer with John Cruck.
0: He looks like he could drink beer.
1: He could definitely drink
0: beer um good that's a great answer that's one of the best answers (laughs) ever him flipping that batting helmet around in the all-star game against randy johns i mean Uh there's there's nothing there's nothing better than that okay um who's the best hip surgeon in the world
1: oh Mm, i've got i've got top three you want
0: top one yes john phil or uh dr Philippon really? Mm-hmm. I know he's the goat and I've seen awesome outcomes. I just feel like that. Uh, that was a gimme. Uh, I would have expected okay. you to say that. So
1: I know. Well, that's why I said I got two others on the list. But you 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 gave me one.
0: Who else you got? Callista Mars? Uh, Steve, and... uh,
1: Steve Aoki in Utah. It's great. Um, he's awesome. And then Ron Coleman here in the Northeast up at uh, HSS and comes down to Ventura is also awesome.
0: Oh, he—he's the Vincera guy. He's
1: okay. the Vincera guy. Yep.
0: Um, you he's, realize he's if,
1: primarily HSS, but he does every other Mondays at Vincera.
0: You—you you realize that if Dr. Myers at Vincera heard you use the word sports hernia, his head would explode.
1: I know, I know, athletic pubalgia. Sorry.
0: I—I <laughs> I think he—he's now on core muscle injury, but uh, he I is on my. core muscle. Yeah. I feel like it much. <laughs> Okay. Um, last but not least, um, the most impactful book you've ever read.
1: I hate reading. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm just joking. Oh, most impactful book, man. Hmm. Well, well, I can't think of the name of it. It uh, he was written by a Bucknellian. Um, <laughs> Oh my god, I can't think of the name of it. It's not that impactful if I can't think of the name of it. But uh, exactly. Well, we'll go then I'll have to go my alternative because I can think of that name, but it's it sounds crazy, but white coat investor.
0: Oh, that was good. you feel like you embody that those principles?
1: I did early on. I will say I've I branched out from those principles, but at least gave me a better understanding. Like we get no education in that, and and no education. So that was
0: very helpful same we also get no education in that that book was awesome what also was enlightening for me was i did a podcast with dr andrew livingston who you know and love Mm -hmm. and the way he handled student debt and continues to handle student debt and invest appropriately was the entire topic of the podcast i implore you to listen to that he's he's awesome i would definitely
1: listen to that yeah that's awesome
0: hell yes okay I
1: i wish i could think of the um Name of that book, the other one, but I, but it's also finance related. So,
0: we'll put it in the show notes. Um, you have been an awesome voice for doctors of osteopathy, for hip surgeons. It's it was really enlightening to talk to you. I appreciate the insight and this this intraoperative stuff because it does play a part in the way the patient looks once they get to us is imperative and and pts i feel like just don't know this crap so thank you for enlightening us thank you for all the insight and your time where can we find you on social and how can all of these sports pts get a hold of you
1: So we are on OSSHealth.com. You can find me there. Um, We can get a hold of me directly. Uh, You feel free to share my email. Um, It's CMorris at OSSHealth.com. All of the local therapists, Andrew and Danny, they've got my cell phone. They text me uh, frequently. So I'm probably not going to put that one out on the airway. But but, uh, those would be the two places. I don't, unfortunately, have the uh, classic social media account. So that one's on a private realm.
0: Yes, you you have to get Yet. that, and you have to get your own pod. You are good at this. I would. Well, I appreciate to that. it. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate Thank you, you having your, me on. Uh, oh, this was this was. You great. guys have been great. We'll, we'll do it again soon, and I really appreciate you. Thank you, doctor.
1: You get have a have a good holiday season, and uh, we'll talk soon.
0: Talk soon.